And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Robert Moffitt. He's Senior Fellow in Domestic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Robert, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. You wrote an article um, a little while ago in the Daily Signal. The title was, States Are Offering Relief from Rising Healthcare Costs. Here's How Congress Can Help. And uh, I'd like to talk just a little bit about that. I'm wondering, first of all, can you set the stage? What are some of the frustrations right now that middle-class Americans are experiencing under Obamacare? Well, the biggest one is that uh, the president, Obama, when this was passed in in 2010, uh, the president said repeatedly uh, that Americans would see an annual decline uh, in their health insurance costs. In fact, he put a he put a metric to it. He said that the annual decline in health insurance costs for the typical family would be about twenty five hundred dollars. Uh, instead, <clears throat> since that time, actually, we have seen a an explosion of health insurance premium costs beginning in 2014, which is the first year in which Obamacare was fully phased in. And there, the average premium uh, increase at that time was 53.4%. So we've had, over the last four years now, uh, one rate shock after another. And in fact, the Department of Health and Human Services estimates that uh, uh, premiums increased by 105% over those four years. Uh, We're experiencing another uh, 34% increase in in 2019. Uh, Insurers are now saying that it could be another 30% increase. Now, here's the point: if you are, if you're, if you're a sub, if you're heavily subsidized, if you're a low-income person, um, and you make uh, less than $15 an hour, you're in pretty good shape. Actually, you will get very, very large taxpayer subsidies. But if you're a member of the middle class, if you're a member of a large chunk of the middle class, you, and you make, let's say, over $47,000 a year uh, for as a single person, you don't get any premium subsidies at all. And uh, what people are experiencing now is that if they're in the individual market, uh, they're paying all of these gigantic premium increases, plus they have deductibles uh, which are killing them. I mean, they are explosive. In the case of, on a, na- on a nationwide average basis, the so-called silver plans uh, have deductibles that now average over $4,000 for a single person and mm. more than $8,000 for a family. So for middle-class Americans, uh, this is virtually useless. And more and more people we, can, we know, uh, it's not a debate. We know that because of this, more and more people are starting to skip medical appointments simply because they can't afford it. So we have junk insurance on a vast scale now as a result of the current law. Yeah, it's, it's rather discouraging. Um, I'm tempted to go down the rabbit trail of that low income and explain that it may be nice for them, but it's not nice for the the majority of the people. But we'll stay away from that. Um now, your article makes reference to temporary relief. Can you describe what that's all about? Yeah, uh, what's happened is that under the current law, under Obamacare, uh, there is a provision called Section 1332. It's a waiver provision. 
And uh, under this provision of the law, which was part of Obamacare, which is part of Obamacare, the states can apply for waivers. And these waivers uh, can enable these states, uh, they can construct their own rules uh, with regard to a lot of the regulations in Obamacare, including some of the reinsurance programs. Uh, now, reinsurance, of course, is, is a way in which the insurance companies are funded. They finance a common pool and the insurance programs with the highest uh, cost because they have the largest number of high-risk or sicker people would be made whole by those costs. So what's happening is you're starting to see some of these states apply to the Trump administration to get these waivers. Uh, Alaska is, is really kind of a dramatic case. Now, of course, that market is very small. There's very small population in Alaska, but they got a, a 1332 waiver and they created a risk pool up there to stabilize their insurance market. And they reduced their premiums by about 25%. What they were able to do with the Trump administration giving them this waiver is they were able to redeploy some of the money they were spending on subsidies and basically uh, retarget that money for a high risk pool to care for people who are with very high health insurance costs. Mm -hmm. Louisiana is also working to create a reinsurance program for their people. Uh, they're talking about a $1.25 tax uh, on health plans for each enrollee. So each enrollee, the health plan pays $1.25. And uh, they're projecting a premium reduction of about 15%. Now, that's pretty good. Maryland, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland has uh, really been kind of a leader in this area. Uh, he, just, uh, he just signed a bill that would create a, a reinsurance program for Maryland, there would be a small tax on premiums. It would be a 2.75% tax on the premiums. And uh, the Washington Post is now reporting that uh, Maryland officials are looking to cut the individual market premiums in half. So it seems that, you know, giving the states this authority uh, through the waiver process, and to their credit, the Trump administration is promoting this, uh, we can start to reduce some of these premiums in the individual market. And that's that's really critical because, as we said earlier, for a lot of uh, middle-class people, paying these insurance premiums is like taking out uh, a second mortgage. I mean, oh, it's yeah. on a monthly basis. It's You're talking about, in Maryland, I know what it is because I'm chairman of the Maryland Health Care Commission. That's one of the things I do outside of Heritage. But mm -hmm. I sit on that commission, and I can tell you, that for Maryland middle-class citizens, they're paying fifteen and $1,600 a month in insurance costs. Wow. Well, it's, uh, it's a big problem. I, I really wish Congress would, could get a hold of themselves and could just get rid of this Obamacare altogether. But <laughs> You're not kidding. You, you know? <laughs> what a great idea. Yeah, right? Maybe what are the next steps? Uh, at least take baby steps here. Um, well, there's a lot to do. I, I think what we need to do is we need to basically um, pass a comprehensive bill in the Congress. And I think that uh, the Republicans who have promised for the past eight years that they were going to do this oh. actually should really get on it and start to, oh, to yeah. make a number of, number of real serious changes. Um, what I would say that probably the thing to do is, is to, you know, establish some, you know, basic standards that we all agree on with regard to protecting people from pre-existing medical conditions, for example. Uh, 
um, everybody is in agreement on that. Uh, there doesn't seem to be too much concern about that. But and give the states the authority to restructure their own markets in terms of the kind of rules that they set uh, for the people in their states. What I'm really talking about here is to give the people of the states themselves, through their elected representatives, the right to make the decisions that they think is best for them in terms of how they're going to restructure the market. Why do I say that? I say that because every state is radically different in terms of their health insurance markets. Healthcare costs in the states are affected by a lot of different things. How many old people you have, how many young people you have, what is the health of your population? Are there more healthier people in your population than unhealthier people? Uh, what is the level of poverty? What is your standard of living in the state? What is the economy like? Do you have a strong and growing economy? How many people do you have on Medicare and Medicaid? And how do the, do the Medicare and Medicaid programs affect the unit cost or the, the, the cost of health insurance? Or how do, how do these big federal programs affect the market? Um, what, is, what are the medical practice patterns like? They're not all the same. People in Minnesota, for example, doctors in Minnesota uh, practice very, very differently in many cases from uh, doctors, uh, for example, in Florida. Uh, is there a very high em uh, emphasis, for example, in, in a state on the use of medical technology? What kind of competition exists in the state? Are hospitals competitive? What kind of, uh, you know, what kind of uh, doctor-patient uh, ratio is there to the state? How, in other words, per capita, how many physicians are there? All of these things, and that's a complicated thing, as you can see, I mean, just by you know, thinking about just a few of the things I mentioned, all of these things affect the cost of medical services, and in turn, those affect the cost of your health insurance premiums. So what we need to do is to allow the states to restructure their health insurance markets that really uh, reflect those very different conditions on the ground. Uh, what would that mean in practice? Well, it may mean, for example, that the kind of age rating rules you use, in other words, how much you charge older people compared to how much you charge younger people, may differ from state to state. If you have a, of a state with a very, very large number of older people, you're going to have a different approach to this uh, than you would if you had a state where you have an extremely young population and a relatively few older people. I mean, that's just the way it is. So what changes would expand access as much as possible, but at the same time uh, control costs? These are the kinds of things. So I think the big thing that Congress can do is to turn over to the states that kind of control over their insurance markets. Another thing that should be done is to give the states more direct control of the funding. How should you allocate uh, subsidies for low-income people and for middle-class people? How should that be done? The way we do it today, it's simply you know a national standard based on income. Well, maybe that's not the best way to do it. Maybe what we ought to do, and, and frankly what Heritage has always recommended, is that when we are talking about subsidizing people for health insurance, we should include not only their income, but also their health condition. Older and sicker people should get basically more generous subsidies than people who are younger and healthier. That makes sense, not just strictly speaking on income, but perhaps a combination of income and uh, health status. 
would make a lot of sense. Frankly, the Republicans in the House under under Speaker Ryan actually developed something that looked like that. And frankly, it was a very, very serious uh, and, and a positive improvement over the current subsidy system. Um, the opportunities for, you know, experimentation uh, with regard to risk pooling, how we ought to handle risks, uh, high-risk people, how do we make sure that high-risk people are are taken care of? Uh, do we subsidize them? Do we establish a common risk pool? Do we establish a reinsurance pool like Maryland or Louisiana or Alaska? How should we do that? Uh, that would call for a lot of creativity, I think. And all of those things, I think, would really greatly improve the functioning of the health insurance markets. And if we did that, uh, there would be a positive effect on health care costs, for, especially for middle-class Americans. Yeah. I sometimes take my father to the doctor's office. Yeah. And uh, as people get older, it seems like we, we end up visiting the doctor more often. And, um, oh, sure. It, it's... Uh, it's it's a big deal, you know. You want it, you want older folks taken care of, and uh, yes. Um, what I'm hearing here is a couple things. One is a uh, top-heavy federal one-size-fits-all approach. Yes, uh, it really doesn't work in terms of normal people's lives and and the conditions on the ground in each individual state. Right. It clearly doesn't. Yeah. Right. And also, one thing I'm wondering if. If you have a little more time, if we can stay on sure. just a little bit longer, I, I'm just wondering um, what is the role here of um, independent uh, church organizations, uh, oh, things yeah. like that? Isn't can't they play an important role in terms of helping people? Oh, absolutely. Let me just make it very clear to you that I think uh, this is one of the untapped uh, potentials of the private sector. Um, one of the reasons why we haven't tapped it is because the tax laws are so bad. When and that's this is a big issue. You're you're touching on a big one. Uh, this is a big issue with regard to insurance. Right now, if I work for a company, I get unlimited tax relief uh, for health insurance if and only if I get my health insurance through the company health plan, and it's unlimited. In other words, the Heritage Foundation has a very generous health care plan, I can tell you. And it's all tax-free. Uh, large corporations, same thing. Here's the problem, though. The tax breaks are restricted. That generosity is, to a large extent, restricted to either the self-employed or those who are employed uh, in companies that offer health insurance. Yeah. If you're outside of that system, and you're not eligible because you're middle class. You're not eligible for a subsidy. You get nothing. Hmm. So what that means is that your options are very, very limited. You'll be paying. You can buy health insurance on your own in the individual market, but you'll be normally paying anywhere between 25 and 35 or even 50% more in premium for the same package of benefits that you would have otherwise gotten at the place of work. Right. Now, this is not a debatable issue. Economists have been talking about this since Milton Friedman raised this issue back in the 1960s. My view is, and the view of the Heritage Foundation for years, is that what we ought to do is we ought to establish individual tax relief for people, regardless of where they work, for them to use toward health insurance that they purchase, regardless of whether they get it through the job or someplace else. 
And what this w- would do is it would radically open up the market because you could have group insurance sponsored by churches and religious institutions. Yeah. You used to have, I mean, I, people forget this, but you know, at the turn uh, between the 19th century and the 20th century, uh, an awful lot of your social services was done like life insurance <laughs> and what they used to call sickness funds was done primarily by religious and fraternal organizations. Yeah. People forget this. Yeah. But America had a huge, you know, independent sector. Well, frankly, I mean, look at, look at the facts of life on the ground. You have a lot of religious institutions that sponsor hospitals, right? Oh, sure. Uh, and sponsor clinics and things like that. But they don't sponsor health insurance. But imagine, for example, if you had a situation where you could have group insurance, uh, which would include, you know, religious institutions, where religious institutions could sponsor group insurance just like unions, you know, used to do back in the old days, and still, some still do under the Taft-Hartley Act. Hmm. Uh, you could have, uh, you could have, uh, and, you, and you, you adopted what Trump wants to do, which is, you know, a national market. You could have, uh, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention. As I, I use that as an example because there's so many... Uh, magnificent Baptist hospitals throughout the South, you could have 17 million people potentially in a health insurance system. Yes. And, of course, what would that do uh, to your health insurance costs, your administrative costs? Well, of course, they would collapse. The administrative (laughs) costs would collapse. And the average premiums would also decline. Uh, because if you had a tax credit system that opened up the system and enabled people to get health insurance without a you know without a tax penalty like they have to have today again if they're middle class then you know you change you change the face of the earth basically when oh, it comes yeah. to the health insurance market now everything I'm saying to you has been debated for quite some time uh, and many many economists some of the best healthcare economists in the country, if not the world, have made this argument that the fundamental difficulty with the American health insurance market is the federal tax treatment of health insurance. If we can create a healthcare tax policy which is fair and equitable, that doesn't punish you because you're not lucky enough to get health insurance through the place of work, and we open that system up, uh, we could have a really strong and robust system. And I, I would, I guarantee you, that under that kind of an arrangement, uh, you could have um, faith-based organizations, religious institutions sponsor health insurance, and um, it would it would be some of the most successful health insurance in the country. By the way, at the same time, you would all, you would obviate all the ethical and moral and religious questions that attend uh, to ethical questions in yeah. healthcare. Uh, concerning the beginning of life and the end of life as well. That's right. You would obviate it immediately. Oh, yeah. Um, how large is the middle class? You, you've mentioned it a couple times, the middle class. It's most Americans. It's most Americans. The biggest slice of Americans are middle class. Yeah, sure. And the middle class is huge. I mean, it goes from people who are making like thirty-five to $40,000 a year all the way up to you know, uh, 250, 300,000, 250,000, something like that, roughly. And under Obamacare, they're being hurt the most. According to everything we know about, uh, according to the best information we have, the middle class are the ones who 
if they're not, if they're not in an employment-based health insurance system, they're the ones uh, who are suffering the most uh, with these uh, explosive uh, premium costs that have been going on, by the way, uh, since uh, since 2014. Yeah. So yeah, the, this yeah the middle class is, in my opinion, the middle class is getting killed under the current current law. Now, now, what about people that are not familiar? with the beauty of a free market system. Maybe all their life they've been indoctrinated in kind of a socialistic perspective. Can you yeah. t- take the edge off for that person that, and, and, and yeah. in, in the next two minutes just say, this is the beauty of competition? Well, there, yeah, I can. I, I think I would say, first of all, that we have a, we have a huge uh, a political and moral consensus in this country that people who are poor or people who are sick are going to require um, direct assistance, either through the federal tax code or through some kind of a subsidy system. So mm-hmm. there's no disagreement on that. And that our public policy already reflects that. But there's a lot of people, you know, who just simply uh, want to be able to have control over their health care. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it for a moment, right now, you and I, and just about everybody else listening to this program, has very little control over health care. Yeah. <laughs> There's no free market in health care in the United States. There hasn't been a free market in health care in the United States in decades. It's really, really been, you know, before World War II. Yeah. So what we've got is we've got a very, very large third-party payment systems that are dominated by both government programs like Medicare and Medicaid and large corporate um, health insurance arrangements, uh, mostly managed care corporations, uh, and also uh, large employment-based systems. Now, you know, I mean, they all perform, you know, more or less okay. But the point is, what the problem that we have is we have no competition in this system. In some states, you'll have one or two or three uh, insurers who dominate the entire market. In the state of Maryland, where I'm the chairman of the Maryland Healthcare Commission, we have about you know, four companies that are offering in the individual market. And actually, it's actually two and a half companies. But the point is, is that's not a competitive market. No, uh, People have very, very little consumer choice. But under the current system, for example, they, people have no control over the health care plans they have. Let's see, those plans are determined by the government or their employer or a managed care corporation. They have no control over the benefits or medical treatments that are included in those plans. Um, you know, I'll just mention an ethical question that I think is vitally important. An awful lot of people are in private insurance today, and they're financing abortion, but they yes. don't know it because it's part of their system. But they don't actually know that they're doing it because the employer or the insurance company doesn't tell them. Uh, but in fact, you know, they're, you know, as as the what is it the the Pope uh, says, they're cooperating with evil, even it's though true. they don't know it. It's true. They do not know it. So what we've got to do is we've got to open the system up. And with competition, if you have plans that are competing directly for a consumer's dollars, that will give you a high degree of patient satisfaction. If you have a system that is a free market, you will have price transparency like you have in every other sector of the economy. And you'll have some kind of idea about what things actually cost. Most people haven't got any idea about what things cost in this system. So you'll have a a hospital system, for example, where, you know, or in in, in a state where, you you know, a knee replacement 
you know, will cost maybe $15,000 at one hospital and $30,000 in another one, even though they're 15, you know, maybe 15 miles apart. But you have a $15,000 difference. Yeah, that's huge. Well, that's absurd. That's yeah. an indication that there's no price competition. And, you know, we have got to open up the system, make it more transparent, and give people more freedom to pick and choose the health plans, as well as the providers, but the health plans, the doctors and the hospitals and the medical professions they want, and um, not penalize them either by regulation or with the federal tax code, which is what we do today. I couldn't agree more. Uh, today we've been talking with Robert Moffat. He's Senior Fellow in Domestic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And Robert, if someone would like to read more, where can they go? Oh, just uh, go to heritage.org, heritage.org, and uh, just, uh, you know, if you're interested in health policy, when you get on the Heritage website, uh, just look under Issues and go to healthcare, and uh, you're going <laughs> to, you'll, you'll, you'll have literally an encyclopedia of uh, really, actually, I'm not saying this because I work here, it's really true, uh, yeah. some really outstanding, uh, first-class, highly professional um, publications on health policy. Uh, our analysts have published in some of the finest professional journals in the country, and at the same time, they produce uh, some very, very fine papers for the Heritage Foundation. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 there is a wealth of material uh, available for people who want to look into the current system, Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid, the functioning of the insurance market, and health care reform. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. Robert Moffat, thanks so much for taking the time with our listeners. Oh, it's been a, Mr. Elmendorf, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer 